0: Good morning again. We will be in Matthew 5 this morning, and we will be going through verses 1 through 16, Is was already mentioned. But leading up to that portion of Scripture... In chapter 4, beginning in verse 23 through 25, it says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So we see that his ministry leading up to this point is teaching and preaching and healing. And there's a result in verse 24. It says, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. So as a result, we see his fame went throughout all Syria. So what did they do? Well, they brought him more sick people. Every condition in that verse listed requires a physical healing, and at the very least, nobody is mentioned as coming to receive teaching and preaching. Jesus is gracious to heal them all, but the emphasis of his ministry is teaching and preaching, as he will even say in Mark 1, verse 38. So, great multitudes, verse 25, followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So it says, great multitudes followed him. The word followed here is the same followed that we see in chapter 4, verse 20, when Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed Jesus. Same word, but there's one difference. Verse 20, with Peter and Andrew, it implies that they joined as a disciple or became a disciple. In this verse, the implication is different. It implies that they are just accompanying him. They're just hanging out with Jesus. Perhaps many followed because the show was really good. And that may have been their intent, but they're going to get a lot more than they intended for. At the end of chapter 7, it tells us that the people were astonished by the sayings. And we should be astonished by Jesus' words, right? But that's not where it should end with us. We should be astonished, and then we should put our feet to the ground and walk out our faith. So as we read these words and as we get into this message, I just pray that we wouldn't just stop there at astonishment, but that we would heed these words from Jesus. So the beginning of our passage here, as many of you know, if not all of you, it's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins this profound and powerful teaching with a pathway to kingdom living in verses 3 through 10, also known as the Beatitudes. A word derived from the Latin beatitudo, meaning blessed or happy. Now, each beatitude or blessing traces our new life in Christ in stages, if you will. It's an ascending pathway from beginning to end. So, beginning our study in verse 1, it says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. So Jesus seized the multitudes, and he went up on a mountain. Now, Jesus isn't trying to get away from the multitudes in order to preserve this message for a select group of people. I believe that would be contrary to other places in Scripture. The multitudes could certainly follow as far as they wanted to. They could get as close as they needed to to Jesus. And that's really different than when we saw Moses speaking with God on the mountain in Exodus 19, right? God tells Moses, put a boundary around the mountain that nobody should come up this mountain nor even touch it or they'd be put to death. This is not what's happening here. Jesus' message is for everyone. How far we will follow him, well, that's on us. How far will these folks travel up this mountain to receive his teaching? That's the question. And I think we all have a tendency to follow and draw in when we need a miracle, when we need a healing Or perhaps when we just want the Lord to intervene in our lives. But then we hesitate when it comes to his words, his truth, in following him there with our entire life. So a question for you this morning, how far will you follow Jesus up the mountain? We will see in the next part of this verse that his disciples, they draw physically near to him. So are you a disciple or are you one of the multitudes? Because what comes next, while it is available for everyone, and it is for everyone, it's really for the disciple and for the follower of Jesus Christ. So it says, he was seated. This posture that Jesus takes would have indicated exactly what was going to happen next. He was going to teach. And it was customary in that culture for teachers to be seated while teaching and the students to be standing And somehow along the way, we got that one messed up. (laughs) As I stand here and you sit there. (laughs) So the disciples draw near, as I pointed out. So they get really close. And it says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... He opened his mouth. This phrase, the tense here, it represents a continual action. So it's Jesus opened his mouth and kept teaching. It's not as if Jesus just now began teaching... He is always teaching, but here now through verbal instruction. So moving into verse 3, our first blessing. Now each of these blessings or characteristics on our pathway to kingdom living is characterized as a blessing, but it also imparts a blessing. So let's look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor here means to be needy or destitute. No surprise there. Now, by itself, poor certainly doesn't feel like a blessing. Any of us that have been poor or are poor know that it does not feel like a blessing to be there. Certainly some blessings can come out of it. But the key to understanding this phrase are the words in spirit. This is our spirit, the power by which we feel, think, will, and decide. This is our soul, and every human being has one. However, the Christian has recognized their being poor in spirit. The Christian recognizes their spiritual poverty. We recognize our entire need. As one commentator put it, this self-emptying conviction that before God we are void of everything Lies at the foundation of all spiritual excellence, according to the teaching of Scripture. Without it, we are inaccessible to the riches of Christ. With it, we are in the fitting state for receiving all spiritual supplies. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 3, there's a story that we know, and uh, the disciples ask, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus goes and snatches up a little kid and brings the kid in the midst of them, right? And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is relevant to our passage because a child is almost fully reliant on someone else to care for them. They're also unconcerned with their status. They don't care what you think of them. Watch a kid play. You will see they don't care what we think of them. They also don't get caught up in all the things adults get wrapped up in. The poor in spirit, we're blessed because we truly recognize it isn't about what we have or who we are. The poor in spirit recognize they have only an abundant need. And what a perfect first blessing or beatitude. It's achievable by anyone because anyone can have this realization and call on the Lord. We wouldn't be able to continue forward without this critical first connection to the Lord. And as I mentioned, being poor in spirit is a blessing which imparts a blessing, and that blessing is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It blows my mind, it's such an accessible first blessing when you think about it, with such an indescribable reward attached to it. God just requires that we recognize our spiritual destitution and need for him, and our poverty in spirit is met with unmatched riches. And it isn't as though we will receive. It is received. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here we have access to the fullness of Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we can expectantly look toward the day when the king will say, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. On this blessing, all the other blessings rest. It's the foundation Because none of the following blessings are possible in our own strength. None are possible without first recognizing our desperate need for God. To be meek toward others requires us to rely on God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness requires an emptiness. Mercy is most powerful when we realize how much we too need mercy. And our next blessing on this pathway to kingdom living... Is mourning the only appropriate response to a destitute spirit? Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Jesus says. We can best define this blessing by joining it directly to the previous verse. This mourning shouldn't be strictly defined as our sadness over our sinfulness or just mourning or sadness in general. That is a part of it, but it takes root In our poverty of spirit. And together they spring us toward that meekness. Toward our hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Our mercy and our pure hearts. Our poverty of spirit is an intellectual realization. While our mourning is an emotional response to it. And the two are almost bound together. With God as the backdrop and not this world. Our condition becomes grievously apparent. In Isaiah 6, the prophet, he has this heavenly vision. He's convicted, and he sees the gravity of his own sin. And his response is, "'Woe is me, for I am undone.'" Poor in spirit says, "'I am undone.'" And mourning says, "'Woe is me.'" Peter, he knows all about fishing. He was a fishing businessman. And with Jesus in the boat, he has a bad fishing day. And Jesus tells him to cast the net out, right? And he doesn't really think he's going to catch anything, but in faith he casts the net out. And what happens? Brings in this haul, right? And Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The same can be said here. It's his spiritual poverty and his mourning together that allow him to say these words. And the blessing that's imparted is that they shall be comforted. The things of this world cannot satisfy or add comfort to this godly mourning. Godly mourning has to be met with godly comfort, the comfort of knowing we're forgiven, the comfort of knowing we have a high priest that can sympathize with us, the comfort of knowing that we have fellowship in his sufferings, but also the absolute comfort that all sorrow will one day be no more, that it will be done away with in and by the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven which was previously promised to those who are poor in spirit. Which leads us to the next blessing. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To define meek, we could say we accept God's dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing or resisting. It is a submissive attitude toward the will of God. And in the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. So, we can see how this attribute directly builds on the previous two. We are wholly dependent on God, knowing we bring nothing to the table. We grieve in response to that poverty of spirit, and now we submit to the will of God with a gentle attitude toward him and to people. Paul puts these two ideas of poverty of spirit and meekness at the beginning of of our walk as well. And in Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, he writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. These are different words used here, lowliness and gentleness. But still, it's the same idea of spiritual poverty that recognizes my whole reliance on the Lord and my submissive response to his will. And again, the blessing, the meek, well, they shall inherit the earth. Now, this isn't the earth as we know it now, because I'll tell you, I don't want to inherit this earth. <laughs> Not at all. This earth is broken and lost. You just turn on the TV for a few minutes, listen to the radio, listen to the radio that plays inside the grocery stores for a couple minutes. Stand outside it for a present moment and just watch people conduct themselves, and you'll learn really, really quick, the world needs Jesus. This promise is in the future tense. Kingdom of heaven is a present fact, but this promise is for the future. The psalmist writes of this promise in Psalm 37, verses 9 through 11. He says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I cannot wait for that day. Amen? So when the wicked are cut off and Jesus comes to rule and reign, then as co-heirs with Christ, we inherit the earth. We have this hope that even when it seems like we're being cut down and hard-pressed, we can know our future. We don't get the short end of the stick, even though it feels like it sometimes we one day get the whole thing. So, as we've looked at these few items so far, these these first three characteristics, you'll see that there's not one desirable quality for the person that doesn't follow Christ. These are kingdom qualities. These are completely contrary to the world around us. And moving into the next one, a hunger and thirst that is only desirable to a person on this path as well. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, you must be hungry and thirsty, right? It's pretty logical. Hungering and thirsting for the things of this world are a real obstacle to the kingdom, because then you're full and you can't be filled. Figuratively speaking, this hunger and thirst is so intense that it's painful, After first service, I was talking with a dear brother that comes here who's way smarter than me, um, knows the Bible. I think he has the whole thing memorized, perhaps. Um, I'm not kidding. And uh, he says to me, he goes, you know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's like if you jumped in the water to save somebody who was drowning and you went to lift them up and they're pulling you down because they can't swim and so you're trying to keep them up. It's that moment as you're sinking down and you finally get that release to go up and you get above the water and you gasp says, that's what hungering and thirsting for righteousness feels like. I didn't tell him I was going to steal it, but I was like sitting there listening to him going, I'm going to steal that for next service. (laughs) Because it was so good, and it it was so true. You'll see the illustration I have later, it's not that good. (laughs) The object of our hunger and thirst is righteousness, which includes the definite article, the righteousness. Righteousness. It's not self-righteousness, not some righteousness attempted by self-strength and means, but the only true and genuine righteousness unachievable in our own strength or by any works. The word righteousness in this passage is in the accusative case. Now that's important because it means that the righteousness is what we are hungering and thirsting towards. When we find this word in the genitive case, it indicates the idea of belonging, so the righteousness belongs to us. But it doesn't belong to us. We will never fully realize the righteousness this side of eternity, but it should be what our hunger and thirst is directed towards. So a few questions to ask yourself, questions I ask myself in this study. Do you hunger and thirst for the only true and genuine righteousness so much that it's painful? Do you long to be more like Jesus every day? Do you desire to be continually refined by the Lord? Do you want to see this righteousness we just defined in the world? Well, Jesus tells us that if we do, we will be filled. That's the promise. But we can only be filled if we are empty to begin with remember, we bring nothing to the table. We have to have faith that the Lord will continually fill us. And he does. And he will continue to fill us. This is also an interesting phrase, for they shall be filled. Since we can't fully realize the righteousness in our life here, it literally means that when we are filled, it both satisfies us, but then leaves us wanting more. So This fills us up, satisfies us, but leaves us wanting more. It's kind of like eating pancakes. (laughs) Told you, the water one was way better. But the pancakes, it's serious, right? Like when we eat pancakes, we still want more, we still feel hungry, but then we're full, and then 20 minutes later we're hungry again. Like that's just the magic of pancakes. So this is like this righteousness, it leaves us wanting more. We're filled, but we continually want more of it. So a person with all these qualities understands now the importance of mercy. So Jesus moves on to mercy in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What incredible mercy each one of us has been shown, right? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But also consider What mercies we still need every day. Therefore, we are merciful because of the mercy we have already received and also the mercy we're yet to receive. We show mercy because we have obtained great mercy and still need great mercy. We serve a Lord whose mercies are new every morning. And the promise, they shall obtain mercy. Jesus gives us a parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew. And it's, a, it's an illustration that I think really explains this principle well. And it's a story we all know. There's a master, and he's collecting on debts that all of his servants owe. And this one in particular servant, he owes 10,000 talents. And when he can't pay those talents, the master threatens to throw him and his family in prison. And so the guy falls to his knees, and he begs for mercy, and the master shows mercy on him. Well, that servant goes out and he finds one of his brothers and he chokes him out for 100 denarii. The guy falls to the ground. He starts praying for mercy. And the servant says, no way, not going to do it. Throws him in prison with his family until he can pay the debt. Well, a couple of the other servants that were in that company, they snitch on the guy to the master. And the master is furious. And so he takes the guy and he sends him in to the torturers until he can pay back his debt. So, to gain some perspective here, the 10,000 talents the first servant owed, with some variance, is approximately 1.2 billion dollars by today's standards, or 60 million denarii, or I like this one better, 200,000 years of wages. The point of his debt is it couldn't be paid by his own work, just as our debt couldn't be paid by our own works but needed to be forgiven. The 100 denarii the second servant owed was approximately $2,000, or 100 days of wages. And the point is, this is incomparable to the first debt. So, the merciful Christian is in the middle, having been shown great mercy and still needing mercy every day. And the mercy we're required to give is so small in comparison to the mercy we have been given and continue to receive. Just like the small debt owed to the fellow servant was insignificant in comparison to what he'd been forgiven. Well, that leads us to verse 8, when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is referring to the soul or mind, the heart. It's defined as the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. This is our inner man. To be pure in heart is then devoting your heart to the divine life and nothing else. It isn't simply a strong moral code, but rather, when the heart is pure, it will lead to pure intended actions, which then leads to this next statement for they shall see God. We begin to see God at the moment of conversion, and we continue to see God as we continue to be transformed more and more into his image. The pure in heart enjoy greater intimacy with the Lord and can see him in all aspects of living, even the most difficult trials. We, the pure in heart, will see God from the beginning through the middle until we finally see him face to face when we literally see see God. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And the climactic point of this ascending path or progression is here in verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the word peacemakers here, this isn't the same as what we find throughout scriptures. the scriptures peaceable. Uh, peaceable is more of a passive uh, word that reflects a character trait, kind of like being kind and gentle. This is different. Peacemakers actively work to make and keep peace through dialogue and reconciliation. That's the definition. The most important dialogue being the gospel message of reconciliation. Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Do you actively work to be a peacemaker? Do your actions and motives seek to make peace? Do your words seek to make peace? Because Jesus says, They, the peacemakers, shall be called sons of God. Jesus is a peacemaker. And we, as peacemakers, then share in the family resemblance. Therefore, we're children of God. We seek to break down the walls that divide. When we do that, we can then be his vessel used by him to introduce someone to true peace, which is only found in God. As one commentator put it, those that were peace receivers then became peace diffusers. So that was the seventh beatitude. And with it, we have now completed all the characteristics from this section that the Christian identifies within themselves. Now moving into this eighth beatitude, we see how the individual so far described may be treated by the world. This is really the bookend of the Beatitudes, offering the same reward as the first. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here we see the transition from the ideal characteristics of the disciple to the actual circumstances they may face. And the circumstance is a blessed persecution for righteousness' sake. This phrase, for righteousness' sake, speaks to the seven characteristics that we just covered that embody the follower of Jesus. That's the righteousness. And the promise, like the bookend, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same promise from culmination to commencement. A perfectly fitting reward for those that are persecuted for following this path, for pursuing righteousness. Now, real quick... I think it's important to point out that this is not persecuted for any other sake. Pastor Chuck said, this isn't being persecuted for being weird. And I think that's a valid point. Now, while being persecuted for being just plain weird is still valid, and he's not saying weird like I'm weird. He means like you're just out there being weird, you know? That's what he's talking about. So I think it's valid, but I think honestly in our current culture, he said that in the early 80s, I think now it can be really easy to fall into misidentifying persecution. All of these characteristics are contrary to the world, as we've pointed out. They're righteous by God's standards, and these should incite resistance from the world. Persecution for the things that are defined by God as righteous, that's true persecution. Some people, I suppose, might experience persecution because they're acting a little funky but also for loud opinions on non-kingdom issues. If God, who is righteous, doesn't define it as righteous, then it is not righteous. May I suggest, lovingly, that if you are experiencing resistance or attacks for your position on non-kingdom issues, that just because you are a Christian doesn't make it persecution. Persecution for the things that are defined by God is righteous, is true persecution. As he continues, he says, Blessed are you, verse 11, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. It's interesting. First thing that I noticed when I was studying this is previously it was those and they and theirs. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall. And then here it switches to you. It's almost as if the hearer of what Jesus is saying, is now chosen to be the doer. So now it's, it's a blessing and a reward for them. It's an encouragement for those that have made that choice to live a righteously targeted life. And he says, they're going to revile you. Word for revile, this is direct abuse of criticism. This is in-your-face attacks. In persecution, he promises is going to happen. And he says, and then they're going to say all kinds of evil, nasty things about you falsely for my sake. Here, with those words, my sake, Jesus identifies himself and his cause as the righteousness of the previous verse. Therefore, reviling, persecution, and evil words should be anticipated when we are really, truly following Jesus. And he tells us what to do with this in verse 12. Tough words, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is our response to the reviling, the persecution, the evil words, rejoice, be exceedingly glad. You know, just even in our English understanding of that phrase, that's tough enough of a pill to swallow, right? I somebody's reviling me to my face, that's the last thing I'm thinking of doing, right? Rejoicing and being exceedingly glad. But when we... We have to, though. That's the thing. We have to do this. But when we translate the phrase, it really can be translated as leap for joy. I think that makes that so much harder. Now that I know that. Like, leap for joy. Can you imagine somebody reviling you to your face and you're like, yippee! Woo! (laughs) Kingdom of heaven, you know? Like... I got my eyes on the prize, man. It's hard. It is hard. But that's really what he's asking us to do. He wants us to see how great our reward is in heaven. He also wants us to see that we're in good company. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We leap for joy because our reward in heaven is that great. But to desire heaven in that way... We must discipline ourselves to not desire the things of this world more. But not just that. We're counted among those who came before us, those that boldly stood for the cause and kingdom of God and salvation. Have you ever felt just honored and privileged to be in a specific company of people? I know when I was in the music industry for years... I would always kind of have these moments when I would tour with certain bands and I'd be like, oh my goodness, I've been listening to these guys forever, it's amazing, you know? And you'd have these moments where you feel just so honored to be within a specific group. And I'm sure you all have have felt that before too. This is so much better than that. This is way better than that. We're not the first to endure persecution, nor will we be the last. But we're numbered in this mighty company of people that did. Few such people names that maybe you've never even heard of. George Wishart, he was strangled and then burned for professing the truth of the gospel. Arrayed with gunpowder, hung across his body, he prayed out loud to the Lord, commending his spirit to him, and in a second breath, praying for forgiveness for those whose hands were sending him to his death. Reverend Lawrence Saunders was pulled out of the church he taught in and imprisoned for over a year. When they had arrived to the place of his execution a year later, his shoemaker saw him and said, Oh, my good master, God strengthen and comfort you. Mr. Saunders replied, Good shoemaker, I desire thee to pray for me, for I am the most unfit man for this high office that was ever appointed to it. But my gracious God and dear Father is able to make me strong enough. He denied the opportunity for pardon by recanting his faith, Then he slowly moved towards the fire, sank to the earth and prayed. He then rose up, embraced the stake, and frequently said, Welcome, thou cross of Christ. Welcome, everlasting life. George Roper literally came to this burning stake, leaping for joy, and hugged it. There's many stories like this. These came from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this is what Jesus tells us to do when we experience persecution to rejoice and be exceedingly glad to leap for joy. So all that we have covered of this high calling we have on this pathway to kingdom living rests underneath the umbrella of the following metaphors. And this is our practical application for this morning. The Lord through these illustrations is showing the importance and necessity of this high calling of our conduct. So... To gain context, let's read both of these metaphors, and then we'll go through them one at a time. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, "'You are the salt of the earth. "'But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? "'It is then good for nothing, "'but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. "'You are the light of the world. "'A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. "'Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, "'but on a lampstand.'" And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So our first one, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. And I think we need to look at salt to understand this metaphor. Let's consider for a moment the many uses of salt, both in ancient and modern times, to understand this. First off, salt was, and still is, a precious commodity. Though readily available now, it is still precious, just as we are precious, whether the world recognizes it or not. That preciousness is further supported by the following uses, one we're really acquainted with. Salt provides flavor. I love to cook, and specifically, I really like to make steaks. Um, And I feel like I make a pretty good steak, Perhaps a couple people in this room would agree. I don't know. <laughs> but that... Uh, and, and, you know, people have all these ways they like to make steak, right? Like, you may put the rosemary with the butter and do the spoon thing in the in the pan, you know? and Or you may add some onion powder and some garlic or some fresh garlic. You know, everybody's got their way that they make steak. But without salt, it's still not going to taste good. you got to have the salt. The salt is the most important part. So... We are the salt that adds flavor. The world's out there adding all kinds of seasonings, but they're missing the salt. Now, salt can also be used medicinally. You can use it to clean or treat a wound, and we should be the salt for the wounded and broken, used by the Lord to minister to the hurting and the lost. It's also used as a preservative. Salt slows decay when used as a preservative. We should have a preserving influence. On the culture around us. And the last one is salt has a sustaining property as well. A lack of salt especially in humans can lead to death. Health problems caused by a lack of salt can be fatal if left untreated. This world without salt is on its way to death which isn't to say we have any saving power on our own but through the Holy Spirit in us reaching the lost. So Jesus gives us a warning about this salt that we're supposed to be. He says, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Salt loses its flavor when it is contaminated with other substances and impurities. And that's how it is with us too. Salt loses its flavor when we become contaminated with Things, substances, impurities from this world. The health of the world depends on the salt of Christians. Full-flavored salt. If it has lost what the world hungers for, even if they're unaware of the hunger and need for salt, how can it ever be restored, is what Jesus says. And the answer is, it can't. It's good for nothing. Pastor Chuck put it this way, you either be what God intends you to be, or you're not going to be you'll be trodden under the foot of man. And the final metaphor Jesus gives us to drive this point home, he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city is set on a hill, cannot be hidden. We are the salt, and here Jesus calls us the light of the world. Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And just a chapter later in John 9, verse 5, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus here applies the title he applied to himself, to us. We are the light of the world because he is the light living in us. And just like a city set on a hill, it can't be hidden. When the Christian is being the salt of the earth, full of his or her savor, it has a preserving effect on this decaying and dying world. Similarly, when we are lights shining bright and illuminating Jesus, like a city on a hill in clear view, we have an effect on an ever-darkening world. On the other hand, we will have no effect if the salt is contaminated and the light is hidden. So Jesus continues this metaphor... By saying, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. A light placed under a basket is only able to diffuse the light within the area of that basket until it's completely extinguished, right? What we've been given is not meant to be hidden or confined to a specific area like that. It defeats the purpose of the light to isolate it, because then the entire house remains in darkness. We take a light and we cover it. The house is in darkness. Disciples are not meant to embody all of these beatitudes, only to then hide it and isolate themselves. We're to place it on a lampstand, that it would diffuse that light into the whole house, or for us, the whole world. We're to, as we read in our scripture reading, "You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness." righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We expose them by being that light on the lampstand, all of us, collectively. Finally, verse 16, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So closing this section of the Sermon on the Mount, as lights, we are to shine bright, not in such a way that we bring praise and glory to ourselves or that in some way we're doing anything. We ought to shine in such a way that the world would see our good works and glorify God. A few ways that we could do that are through true humility. When you're being Through true humility, you remain focused on the Lord, and then all glory will be fixed firmly on Him. Acknowledging God in all you do continues to place the emphasis on the work He is doing through you and not on you directly. Being patient and not requiring credit for everything you do, but rather being faithful to do what God has called you to do and giving Him the glory in those things. And finally, Staying humble. After all, anything any one of us has is only because of God's grace anyway. Charles Spurgeon said this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. To which he remarked, The object of our shining is not that men may see how good we are, nor even see us at all, but that they may see grace in us and God in us and cry, what a father these people must have. Let us take heed to our behavior, that it may be such that men who behold it may be led to glorify our Father, which is in heaven. made me think, I don't recommend this, please don't. If you got got kids, kids in here, don't go do this. Staring directly into a light or the sun. Right? We've all accidentally done it. We've been in a situation where we've stared at a light too long, and then what happens when you turn your gaze away from the light? You get spots everywhere, right? Or even worse, partially blinded for a moment. If you stare at the sun too long, we're gonna be blind, right? And when I thought of this, that's exactly what's here what's being said here. So when you do that, when you stare directly at the sun or directly at a light, then that which is being illuminated by that light source is no longer visible. It's only just that that messed you up. Now you're blinded or you're seeing spots because of looking directly at it. So my encouragement is don't blind people by making them stare at you, but get them to see the Lord through what you're illuminating. It can be so easy to become distracted from the mission we have to do, what we have been planted on this earth to do. Here and all throughout the Bible, we are given instruction on how to walk out our faith. And we, at every turn, have to choose to apply it and to walk it out. So as the worship team comes up to lead us in song, I want to point out a few last things here. Notice here that Jesus says, you are the salt, or we are the salt, or you are the light, we are the light. This is not a rally cry to become these things. This is not a challenge. It's a statement of fact It's more of an ultimatum. We are. And as Jesus' disciples, we are the salt and we are the light. So the question is, what are we doing with it? How are we being the salt? How are we being the light? We are either embracing being the salt and light, or we are not. We are either accomplishing it, or we are neglecting it. So, go, be blessed by these words of Jesus, be the salt this world so desperately needs, and be a shining example of Jesus to this dark world. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. None of none of what we studied this morning can be done on our own. And we are so thankful that your mercies are new every day, Lord. I know some of us are not burning as bright as we'd like to be or as bright as we know we should be. And perhaps we're you know, not as, not as salty as we should be. So, Lord, I, I just pray that you would fill us fresh with your spirit, Lord, that we would, as I prayed earlier, utilize our sphere of influence as a mission field, that we would place the light up on a lampstand, that everybody could see you Let's give the world Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.